Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Catechism has a very simple structure. We can summarize it using the words guilt, grace, and gratitude, or sin, salvation, service. We have the, the first Lord's Day, the introduction. What is your only comfort in life and death? And then we have a section which teaches about our misery, a very short section, a section which speaks about how we are delivered and then this afternoon, we come to the third section, which speaks about once we are saved, what does life look like? How do we live in thankfulness? If you look through the catechism, and it's good to spend a little bit of time on this now and again, you see that in, in Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4, we deal with misery. Then Lord's Days 5 and 6, we, we, are, we are presented with the answer to our misery, our deliverer, our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the solution to the problem of sin. He's the one that saves dead sinners. And so then we come to Lord's Day 7, and Lord's Day 7 tells us how we get to participate in that salvation. We need to be in Christ. And how do we get connected to Christ? What unites us with Christ? It is the gift of faith, the divine gift of faith. And that's So then from Lord's Day 7 right through to Lord's Day 22, the Catechism goes through the creed which is a summary of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as the Apostle Paul puts it. It's a summary of the Scripture. It's a summary of the truths, the life, the life-changing truths of God's Word. Then in Lord's Day 23, we've come to the end of the exposition of the Creed. This is what a Christian believes. And in Lord's Day 23 and 24, deal with the question, well, what's the use of believing all of this? What difference does it make? And the answer is, well, when we believe, we're in Christ. And when we're in Christ, we're forgiven. And when we're in Christ, we're righteous. And we're righteous by his merits alone, not by any works we do. And then the catechism asks, well, if faith is so important, if you're dead without it, if you can't be in Christ without faith, where can we get the faith? And the catechism explains that it comes from the Holy Spirit, who works it in our heart through the preaching of the gospel and strengthens it through the use of the sacraments. And so the Catechism spends quite a bit of time on the sacraments in Laws Days 25 through to Laws Day 31. And now we come to Laws Day 32, we're in the third part. And the third part is addressing the question, well, what does it look like? If you've been a dead sinner, if Christ has died for you, and now you have been made alive in Christ. You, you are now clean and pure and righteous. What's that going to look like? How are you supposed to act? What are you supposed to do? What does the new life look like? And here we come to the law of God. The church will now explain commandment by commandment how we live in newness of life. And of course, we can only live in newness of life in the power of the Spirit. So once the church has dealt with the law, we go to prayer. Because the only way we can live in the way of God's commandments is if the Spirit equips us to and incites us to. So we, we need to pray. We need to be a praying people, as we heard this morning. And so today we will deal with the introduction to the third part and we'll deal with the first table of the law. 
And the Catechism, as usual, asks some very good questions. If, if it's all grace, if it's no merit of ours, we don't earn our way into heaven, why demand any kind of works? If it's all grace, why not let, let us get onto the, the bus of salvation and tell the conductor to wake us up when we get to heaven? That's how some people treat the church. Get a membership in the church, show up enough to keep the elders off your back. Don't do too many really egregious sins that are going to call people's attention to us. And then one day we will just end up in heaven. Well, that's not, how, that's not how it works. The simple answer is this. The answer of the apostle, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. If we are in Christ, if we are united to Christ, if we're members of the body of Christ, if we have the spirit of Christ living in us, then something's going to be different. Something has to change. It's not just mouthing words which makes you a Christian. It is the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God by which he brought the universe into existence. That same power, he speaks into the life of sinners to make them into children of God. And if it were possible, it wasn't, but if it were possible to be an observer of the beginning of the universe, you would notice the difference, wouldn't you? From the time when there was no universe to the time when there was. It would be blatantly obvious. And so it ought to be blatantly obvious when you are a new creation by the power of the Word and Spirit of God. It should be clear to you and to everybody else. The Lord Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 12. If you turn in your Bible to Matthew 12, uh, verse 33, the Lord Jesus is speaking about trees and about fruit. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. What is the Lord Jesus teaching us? A very simple truth which the smallest child could tell you that in order for good fruits to appear on the tree, the tree has to be good. Now, legalism... That's not the gospel. Legalism says this. Legalism says, well, it's got to look good. You've got to look like a good tree. So let's take green paper and cut out leaves and paste green fake leaves on this dead tree. And then let's get some red paper mache fruit from the dollar store and let's wire that to the branches and let's call that a fruitful living tree. That's what legalism does just trying to make things look good on the outside. But the gospel says no. The gospel says if you are a bad tree, if you're a dead tree, if you're an unfruitful tree, you cannot change. You cannot produce anything pleasing to God. You need 
to have the experience of a powerful, regenerating work of the Spirit of God to change the very core of who you are. And that is called regeneration. That is called what the Bible calls it being born again, being made alive in Christ. And when that happens, that will be obvious. That will be clear. If somebody one minute is dead and buried, and then the next minute they come out of the grave and they're alive, you will notice the difference between those two states. And so, if you look at question 87, the church confesses the scriptural truth that you can mouth all the theology you want, but if you keep on keeping on going in sin, there's no hope of salvation and only a certain expectation of judgment. In fact, the people that mouth a lot of theology but continue to live in their sins will have to give a greater account. More will be demanded from those to whom much has been given. And so the gospel is very simple. You either love sin or you love Christ. You can't do both at the same time. So what we need to do is we need to pray. We can't change ourselves. We can't change other people. We can't change our children. We can't change our neighbors. God can. And so we pray and we plead with God. We start with ourselves. Lord, give me repentance and faith. Give me a holy hatred for sin, Lord. Give me a holy love for Christ. Give me a new heart and renew a right spirit within me. That's what we pray together with our brother David in Psalm 51. And that is a process which continues the entire life of the Christian. That's laid out in Lord's Day 33. That process of hating sin, killing sin, mortifying sin, and growing in grace and growing in newness of life, that's a, whole, that's a process which never ends until the day we see the Lord Jesus face to face or the day we're called home from this life. But that process has a beginning. We're not born as covenant children automatically in the process of mortification, which is killing the old nature, and vivification, which is coming to life in the new nature. What does the Lord Jesus say? Well, he says this to Nicodemus, and we remember very well what he said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be in the kingdom of God, you need to be one who has experienced that work of the Spirit to make you into a new creation, to be born again. Now, how does that work with our children? Look at the, the, the baptism form for a moment, if you would, on page 597 in your book of praise. This is what the church confesses from the Scripture. Look at that first big paragraph there. First, we and our children are conceived and born in sin, that's Psalm 51, and are therefore by nature children of wrath, that's Ephesians chapter 2, so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. That is what the immersion in or sprinkling with water teaches us. Baptism doesn't say, oh, look, this is a cute, holy little baby that's already a Christian, and uh, you know everything's fine. Just wake them up when they get to heaven. That's not what baptism teaches. Baptism teaches this is a sinner, born of sinners, 
And the only hope for this little baby is the same only hope for her parents. The only hope is Jesus, the blood of Jesus. And so God comes to this little child and says, you know what? I'm going to make you born. I made you to be born in a Christian family. And I'm giving you to be brought up under the preaching and teaching of the Holy Scriptures. And you are called to embrace the promises that I give to you in the covenant. And you are called to believe. So it's an incredible privilege, but also an incredible uh, responsibility and obligation. But we need, as parents, to look at that first paragraph there on the baptism form. We need to be praying for our children. Lord, work faith in the hearts of our children. Faith doesn't come through the DNA. It doesn't, it, we, don't, we don't hand it on from generation to generation genetically. Faith isn't kind of like by osmosis kind of oozing into our children because they live in a Christian family or go to a Christian school. Faith is a work of God. And every one of us starts at the same spot. Every one of us is born, as David says in Psalm 51, born and conceived in sin and iniquity. And we need the Lord to do a great work of new life in our heart. Now, we don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out who's regenerate, who's not, and at what point we get regenerated or not. We leave that to the Lord, but we, we certainly pray for it, and we look for fruits. We look for a heart which is tender towards the Lord. We look for love for the Lord in our children. We look for a desire to do what is right and to fight against their sins. And when we see that, we praise the Lord for it. These are signs of the fact that we are in Christ. Look at the end of question answer 86, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits. By their fruits you shall know them, says the Lord Jesus. By our fruits we will know ourselves. And so the process begins somewhere, and we need it to begin. That's why we pray for regeneration. And the process continues throughout our whole life. And our old nature is kind of like a, a very nasty poisonous snake which has been dealt a death blow but it's thrashing around and it's still trying to get one last time of hitting us with its forked tongue because it wants to take us out and cause as much damage as possible as it's dying that's what our old nature is it's not on the throne of our heart it doesn't rule our life when we're in Christ but it's trying desperately to get back on to get back into the control center of our lives and so the true repentance or conversion of man begins, first of all, with a lot of killing. It's a very violent thing, isn't it? We have to be killing. Be killing sinner or be killing you, says one of the old Puritan writers. We need to be mortifying, putting to death our old nature. Our old nature wells up very quickly within us. And it loves to well up when we're tired or when we're hungry or when we're not paying much attention. And it wants us to go into autopilot mode and just kind of do what we want and, and give in to our lusts and our desires. And we need to always be vigilant and, and awake and, and watching out for what the old nature is trying to do. It's like a fifth column within us. And we need to be saying every day, we need to be saying, die. Die, old nature. I remember a, a little child some years back and I overheard them saying just that. They were fighting against some sin, I guess, and they were saying, die, old nature, die! That's a good way to live, to be telling the old nature to die. So that's the one part of it. 
And the other part of true repentance or conversion is the vivification of the new, the, the, the new nature, the coming to life of the new nature, the power of God wells up within us and refreshes us and changes us and restores us and heals us and produces the fruit of the Spirit so that we begin to live according to who we are and not according to who we were. We were miserable, cowering slaves of the prince of darkness, slaves of our sin and our lusts, and we crawled around in our misery and shame and guilt. That's who we were. But when we're in Christ, we stand straight and tall as sons and daughters of the living God, clean, pure, holy, righteous. And we walk and we act like royal children because that's who we are. And the Holy Spirit helps us to do that more and more. So when then we come to the law in, in Lord's Days 34 and all, uh, 35, 36, 37, 38. And, and the law has different functions for different people at different times and also in different times in the history of, of the, the, the work of God in the Old Testament and the New. But for those who are in the flesh, the law condemns, and we've talked about this in other sermons, the law condemns those who are in the flesh. It convicts them. It damns them. It's like driving the wrong way down the highway, and all the signs are saying, stop, wrong way, no entrance, bad, dangerous, turn around. Everything's negative. And that's the way the, the person who is not in Christ lives. The law just keeps telling them, you're wrong, you're wrong. That's why I hate the law. Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. But when we're in Christ, the law is a friend. It shows us the way. It helps us to figure out how to live as children of God. The law reflects God's character, and we want to be like him because we love him. He's our father, and we delight to learn more about him and what he wishes us to do because we really want to do that. It makes us happy because it makes him happy. Now, look at the preface there on page 550, Lord's Day 34, quoting from Exodus 20, what is the law of God? Now look how it begins. God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God begins the introduction to the law by reminding his people that they are not an oppressed slave people, but that they are free. And then he doesn't go right on to the commandments to say, well, you're free from slavery in here. Let me give you more enslavement. Let me oppress you with another type of slavery. That's not what is happening here. What he's saying in the commandments is this is what freedom looks like. This is what life looks like. If you want to live life, if you want to live freedom to the max, this is what it looks like. The, the teaching and the boundaries that the law gives us free us. And that's what boundaries do. There's, there's scholarship and, 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 and research on children's playgrounds. And I've read some of them. And if you have a perimeter fence on a children's playground, the children tend to use way more of the area because they know where they can be playing. If there's no fence around it, the children tend to congregate closer to the play uh, structures. 
and they don't use as much of the play area. That's what our life is like too. The, the, the boundaries show us the area in which it is good to live and to rejoice in God's gifts. And it's like skiing, I imagine. I haven't skied much, but if you're skiing down a ski run, there are boundaries within which you can really enjoy the fresh powder and you go down the mountain. But if you go out of the boundaries, out of bounds, you're a lot more likely to hit a tree and break your neck, aren't you? And that won't be as enjoyable. It's like paddling on a mountain lake in your kayak or your canoe or in a beautiful river. Where the water goes are the, the natural limits for your enjoyment and your freedom to paddle. But if you say, no, I don't accept these restraints. I want to paddle wherever I want to. And you paddle into the mud or you try to paddle across the land, you're not going to have a very enjoyable day. That's how some people treat the law of God. Instead of rejoicing in the freedom which the limits of the law of God give us, we spend all of our time trying to figure out how to break the law and go and transgress the boundaries. And we find the law oppressive. If we love sin, the law is irritating, it's frustrating, it's oppressive. And so if you find the law oppressive, the problem is not with the law. The problem is with you. And you have a problem with God. If you find God's law oppressive, if you find it heavy, if you find it burdensome, I mean, didn't we read that in the letter of John? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So if you find them burdensome, that means that you need to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to ask the Lord to do a work in your heart to regenerate you and to make you a new creation. Because when we love God, because he has first loved us, then we are free. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And so we come to the, four, the first four commandments that we'll deal with this afternoon. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. God first and only God. I owe allegiance to no other. When I was a slave to sin, there were a million idols that were demanding my allegiance and sucking the lifeblood out of me, and demanding my worship, and they, they never said enough. They always want more, and they take, and they take. The idols, whatever they are in your life, all they want is to take and to take and to take. But the only true God, he gives and he gives and he gives, and there is no other except him. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. That's the delightful freedom that the believer has. What does Philippians 3 verse 18 say on this? If we turn to Philippians 3 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's life when you don't have freedom, when you aren't a new creation. Your God is the belly, your God is your lusts and your passions and your desires. You glory in your shame. 
You slave away for your gods. You slave away for them. You, you slave away for the approval of others. You slave away for your pleasures, for your lust. You slave away for your greed, for money. You slave away for the fake peace of mind that uh, mind-altering substances uh, you think can give you. You're enslaved to what other people think about you. And the Christian is free from all that. Those who have a new life in Christ are free from all of that. We say no. We just say no to the idols. I serve God. I'm free. I trust God. I rely on God. I worry about what God thinks of me, not what other people think of me. God is my help. God is my rock. God is my refuge. God is my salvation. God is the meaning of my life. That's the freedom that the first commandment gives us. It frees us from the multitude of idols to which the unbeliever is enslaved. Then we come to the second commandment, God's law and the power of the Spirit when we're in Christ. When his love fills us, God's law frees us to worship properly. Outside of Christ, by our fallen nature, we're worshiping ourselves. And in worshiping ourselves, we think we're worshiping ourselves, but we're actually worshiping the devil. We're worshiping the kingdom of darkness. God sets us free from that. Turn to Colossians 2 verse 20 for a minute. Colossians 2.20. And we'll look at uh, verses 20 through to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, there's all kinds of ways you can get it wrong. This is one of them. It's to look to legalism as your savior. And that's what the Bible calls self-made religion. You can also translate that will worship. Worship which is according to our imagination. We worship God the way we think, the way we want, the way we consider useful or convenient or pleasurable. We worship God the way we think will attract other people to join us. It's all about us and what we want and what other people want and what we think other people want. That's self-made religion. One of the greatest examples of that, Exodus 32 if you turn to Exodus 32, verse 1, it's the golden calf episode. Exodus 32, verse 1, look what God's people want. They're, they're not really happy with the way that God's doing things. They're like, where's this Moses guy? We have no idea what happened to him. Make us gods who will go before us. We want to see our gods. That's the kind of worship we want. We're not happy with a God who is spirit. And then look what happens. Uh, look at verse 4. Well, Aaron kind of goes with what the people want. And so he makes them a golden calf. And look at verse 4. They said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So they attribute to their idols the works of the true God. And then look at verse 5. It gets even worse because when Aaron saw this, he built an altar and made a proclamation said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, all capital letters, to, to Yahweh, the covenant God. So they're making this fake idol into 
what they see is Yahweh. So they're totally breaking uh, the second commandment. They're worshiping God in a way which he has not ordained. Now look at what God, no, look what happens in verse 6, first of all. The consequences of self-willed worship. When we start worshiping God the way we want, it results in wickedness, literal wickedness. And this is what happens here as well. Verse 6, they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that's not innocent play. The word there's very strong for mocking, the kind of wicked, uh, sexualized uh, kind of partying, depraved partying, which was very, very common throughout the centuries in the worship of false gods. A lot of very, very wicked and depraved sexual activity. That's what's happening. It didn't take long. They just heard God speak the 10 words from the mountain, and here they are worshiping him like animals, disgusting animals giving in to their passions and lusts. Well, that's what happens when we worship God the way we think. And the Holy Spirit sets us free from that. When the love of God is poured into our hearts, when we're united by true faith with Christ Jesus, when we are new creations, we delight to worship God according to what he says. And we will accept no other kind of worship because we know it brings shame and death. And you can see that in verse, verses 7 and verses 8. What does the Lord say? He says to Moses that they have corrupted. Let me just quickly turn back there. Exodus 32, verse 7, verse 8. He says the people have corrupted themselves. That's what self-willed worship does. And look at verse 8. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And God is really ready to destroy his people for that. So that's the kind of worship that sin gives us. And the Holy Spirit frees us from that. He frees us to worship according to God's will. Then we come to the uh, third commandment, the keeping of God's name. You shall not blaspheme or take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We carry the name of God. We carry it in our baptism, the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Like the priests, the high priest of all would carry the name on their forehead. They would carry this little plaque on their turban which said holiness to the Lord. They carry the name of God. We carry the name of God as priests as well, every one of us, even the littlest children. We carry the name of God in our baptism. And we need to carry it in a way so that God's name is not blasphemed. And that's what we get to do as true Christians. Look at Romans 2, verse 23 and 24 for a moment. Romans 2, 23 and 24. This is the negative part. When you're not in Christ and you're just trying to please God according to the law and according to your own efforts and your own merits. Romans 2, 23 and 24, you boast in the law. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's what legalists do. They're talking about, you got to do this and you got to do that and they have no idea of what the gospel is and then often they bring great shame on the name of the Lord by the godless lives which bring which blaspheme the name of the Lord amongst the community in the community. The opposite of that is what Peter talks about in his letter, 1 Peter 
chapter 2, verse 12, where he writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's what the Spirit does in our lives. He turns us from selfish, self-seeking sinners, which bring shame on the name of the Lord, and he turns us into, into living children of God who, who live in good works. And, and as we live in good works, we bring glory to God. Even the unbelievers that hate God, they look at us and they say, praise God. Praise God for the way you live and the good things you do. The Lord Jesus talked about that in Matthew 5, right? If you look at Matthew 5, if you flip in your Bible there quickly, Matthew 5, verse 14 to 16, the Lord Jesus says something very similar. So I'm imagining Peter was quoting Jesus in a way. Matthew 5, 14 to 16 says this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we, we carry the name of God. And we lift up the name of God and we exalt the name of God as we live faithfully in his service. And that brings, we're not bringing his name into disrepute. We're not taking it in vain, but we're bringing glory to his name. And then the fourth commandment, the fourth commandment, of course, to remember the, the Sabbath day. Now, Paul writes to the Philippians and he describes the church as stars shining in the darkness of the firmament. So the world is a dark place. The, the people of God are shining like stars. And how are we shining? Well, he says, holding on to the word of life. That's what keeps us shining. We're holding on to the word. Because it is through the word that God speaks new life. It is through the word that we are born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. The living and abiding word of God is the power which generates the newness of life and the light and the holiness which shines in Christians and in the church of the Lord. It is by the power of the word that we shine. It is by the power of the word that we are changed to be like Christ. Now, that means the more time we spend in the word, the more time we spend with Christ, the more we start to look like him. Moses had that. Moses would go up the mountain, spend time with the Lord. When he came down, his face would be shining. It would be so bright that he had to put a veil over it. They couldn't stand the, sh the brightness because the more time you spend with God, the more you reflect his glory. And that's why we begin our week every week the way we do. We get together and we come into the presence of God as best we can considering the circumstances because we need to spend time in the presence of God. And then what happens? Paul, the apostle, speaks about that. That just like it happened to Moses, it happens to us. The more time we spend lifting up and, and exalting the name of the Lord in song and in prayer, the more time we spend hearing him, hearing him speak to us, the more we begin to shine with his glory. And we are changed from glory to glory after the image of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what happens. And so that's why Christians are set free from 
pursuing their own desires and their own goals and their own plans and trying to control everything in their lives. They give it all up. They close everything down. And they said, Lord, you're going to take care of me. You're going to give me enough food. You're going to make my business work. I don't have to work Sundays. I'm going to spend a day in fellowship with you and your people because I need that more than anything else. And in, in that power, I will do my work for, through the rest of the week, and I know you'll bless me in it. Now, the unregenerate heart is not free to keep the fourth commandment. The unregenerate heart hates the fourth commandment. The unregenerate heart hates Sundays, hates the Lord's Day. Can't do this, can't do that. Restriction here, restriction there. I can't wait. Just like in the Old Testament, one of the prophets speaks about those who are camped by the walls and the gates of Jerusalem, and they can't wait for the Sabbath to be over so that they can buy and sell again. And maybe some of us are like that. Well, we can't wait for the markets to open on Monday morning so we can start seeing the numbers go up and down in our portfolio. Why isn't the market working on Sundays? Well, the unregenerate heart is the type of person that says, I'd rather be fishing thinking about God than in church thinking about fishing. And it sounds very pious, doesn't it? I want to be out in the world in God's creation, just worshiping Jesus and enjoying the fishing. Sounds pious, but it's not. It's will worship. That's what it is. The Holy Spirit sets us free from our own desires, from our own will, from our own wants, from our own ideas about what's good for us. And the Holy Spirit sets us free so that we can just rejoice in what God gives to us. And what God gives to us is a day of life. The market day of the soul, the Puritans call it. It's a day of fellowship with God and fellowship with his people. And it's a day that we long for and look forward to. And, and the believer doesn't say, I'd rather be fishing. The believer says, whom do I have in heaven but thee? The believer says the words of Psalm 42. We've sung them so often. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I want to worship. I want to be in worship. I can't wait for Sunday. That's the mark of someone who has been set free from slavery to sin and death. That's the mark of a free son or daughter of God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He works in us that spirit that the psalmist sings about in Psalm 63, verse 3, where he says, your love is better than life. I'd rather spend one day in the courts of your salvation than a thousand days in the tents of wickedness. When your God has set you free, then you'd rather be worshiping God in the desert on the way to the promised land then be back in Egypt with all the conveniences and with all the flesh pots and with all the vegetables that you used to be eating. That's what the Spirit does. He changes our attitudes also towards the fourth commandment. So it's very simple. Let's sum it up. The gospel is this. You either love sin or you love Christ. If you love sin, you die. If you love Christ, you live. The Lord Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And my commandments are not burdensome. They're only burdensome if you're unregenerate. If you're a child of God, you delight in my commandments. When we love Christ, we know it's because he first loved us. 
And if God has loved us and if God has poured his love into our hearts, then things happen. We start loving God. We start loving our neighbor. That's what the law is. That's simply what the law is. Love God, love your neighbor. Very simple. And this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. And so what do we need to do? We need to pray. Lord, pour your love into our hearts and our lives and our homes and our families and our relationships. Let us love you. Let us love your will. Let us love your commandments. That's what we're going to sing about right now in Psalm 116. I love the Lord. Why? Because he's faithful. You heard my cries. I was dead. He made me alive. I was in distress. He saved me. I was in despair and had no hope. He brought me life and salvation. So what's going to happen? What do I do now? Well, I do the third part of the catechism. What shall I render to my Savior now for all the riches of his consolation? I will lift up the cup of his salvation and call upon his name with thankful vow. In all his people's presence, I will pay my vows to him, the Lord so good and gracious. I will offer you my sacrifice as a token of thankfulness and praise you constantly. The law for the child of God is a delight. So, brothers and sisters, let us delight in it and let us live in thankfulness, giving to him the sacrifice of our entire life. Amen.